And good morning. This is Alicia Bales live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. Hey, Drew. Hello, Alicia. Good morning. Uh, this is the local coronavirus update. This is our second Tuesday morning edition. Yes. We've moved. Yes. <laughs> we've moved and we've become less frequent. Yes. How do you like it? I'm, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Mornings are nice for me. Yeah. And I mean, we're on every other week now, so maybe there's more news to pack into an hour yeah. or no? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Same <laughs> as it ever we'll was, see. really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as, as the underwriting mentioned, COVID is still circulating in the county. Um, for real. Um, we're adding about 20 cases, over 20 cases a day still, um, even with all the COVID that we've been experiencing for the last year and a half. Yeah, and we still have um, reports of people dying from COVID. We've had three this week, I think. Three this week, four since our last show. Yeah. Wow. So before we get too far into things, um, let me run the numbers, Let's shall we? Let's do it. Uh, we've added slightly over 250 cases in uh, two weeks, bringing our case count up to 7,847. Uh, Approximately 250 people are in isolation or quarantine, um, and the county deaths from COVID over the course of this entire pandemic are totaling at 92 currently. Um, California is on an uptick. Um, we're up about 60% over the course of the last two weeks. Um, still, the numbers are pretty low, so that really reflects how well controlled we were uh, two to four weeks ago. But uh, yeah, things are increasing uh, statewide. More locally, uh, Mendocino County is the hot spot in, in Northern California. I mean, we're doing still. Yeah, we're well. We've actually normalized for a little while, and now we're again worse again. Yes. <laughs> right. oh. um, Hi. And the U.S. in general it has a very variegated um, sort of COVID heat map, um, but it has, on the whole, flattened out at around 75,000 cases a day. Um, the death rate is slowly falling, but still over 1,000 people a day are dying from COVID uh, nationwide. So, yes, it is still here. It's not just still here. It's like at some of the sort of worst points of the pandemic, we've leveled off. You know, not the worst, worst, not like the no, big not, surge. Not, not but... like the big surges. I mean, we're, we've leveled off at a fairly high level. Yeah. Um, but we're also dealing with a fairly high level of high number of case counts amongst a population that has either induced or natural immunity that we certainly didn't have a year ago. Um, and so hospitalization rates, for example, have um, are not even close to what they had been um, during some of these more moderate surges in the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. So, but still like tolerating a thousand deaths a day without it's like we've just sort of normalized it well it, it, unfortunately i think it is going to become normalized uh, covid's going to be with us for the duration now i don't mean to throw this at you but i heard an interesting i read something on the internet that that um, <laughs> <laughs> doc i google my symptoms Sorry, this is I what i am ah, no uh, but it was about comparing covid rates to to polio rates and how people reacted and they're not really in terms of how it affects children and and that it was suggesting that you know polio and covid are similar in that way but we ha but everybody knows you know you have to vaccinate for polio but is that do you th have you heard anything about that i mean, I, I can see where you can draw i haven't I, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but well, uh, no, no. But you know, they, they, I can see where you would draw the com 
the comparison. Um, you know, polio was a viral illness that lived amongst us for millennia, um, and you would have you know surges um, that were quite devastating, particularly amongst children, um, all the way up until the vaccine arrived, right? And now, you know, you don't even really need to be vaccinated for polio because it doesn't really exist in, in much mm-hmm. of the world. Um, but in terms of COVID, I, I, I would draw the closer comparison actually to just the other coronavirus illnesses um, or, you know, just influenza is, is sort of the classic one that we've dealt with for hundreds of years. And it is going to continue. Um, COVID is going to continue much like influenza, maybe not with sort of the new flavor of the f- of the year that we get with the flu, um, but certainly as a background viral illness that's just amongst us. I don't think it's going to continue to kill you know, 1,200 people a day in this country. Um, those numbers will drop um, either due to natural immunity or induced immunity or some combination thereof. But it will be here. Uh, we're, not, we're not getting rid of it. It's going to become an endemic um, illness. Mm-hmm. So we're going. We're gonna. There's going to be a process of going from a pandemic to an to an endemic illness. What, what do you think that's going to look like? I mean, we've got um, vaccines. We've got now apparently this new, some new treatments coming down the pike. That yeah. I mean, it's going to look like it. It eventually will look like any other disease, right? So I, you know, when I'm at work, if I if I'm concerned about somebody and I don't know why they're why they have this respiratory infection, I can run something called a respiratory PCR panel. So we do this this lab test um, using this pretty pretty cool technology that can test for about twenty different illnesses um, all in one test. Now it's expensive as heck, so I don't typically order it. Um, but it, though that reflects, I only mention this because that reflects the fact that we have these 20 illnesses that can cause respiratory infections um, you know, amongst us. And when, when we do get it, it can be any one of those 20 that comes up. Now sometimes we kind of know and we don't need it or we don't get it or it's not going to change management so we don't use it very often but this is going to become one of those 20 Mm -hmm. um really in a in a very real sense now it's still a very complex illness um it's not just respiratory um and it has you know a lot of these other sequelae that are distinct um whether they continue to be so distinct we just don't know yet you mean in terms of the in terms of the cardiac the, events uh-huh. and the, the the risk of stroke and kidney failure and the multi-organ problems that you can have and this you know multi-inflammatory syndrome in children that we see in long COVID and all these other things, and the you don't stuff. you don't really see that with you know parainfluenza virus. Right, right. So as as it becomes endemic, we will become more familiar with the post infection symptoms and yeah, and as we as we know what that looks like right i mean this is really still unfolding even though we're two years in almost um it's still unfolding in real time and it's both frightening and fascinating okay so there's a couple of pieces of news one of them is kids are have started to get vaccinated Yay! Yay. not all kids but now it's gone down to the age of five and up so um, that's good. It had been 12 and up, and now 5 to 11-year-olds are eligible and approved for the Pfizer vaccine. It's a one-third dose. It still requires the three-week second dose, um, and it still will make that 
child's arm sore, just like it made everybody else's arm sore. Um, but that's that's available. That's being rolled out, um, you know, this week and the next couple of weeks for for the five to eleven year olds throughout the county. Have you heard anything about how that's going so far? I haven't. I haven't had any good um, data on sort of turnout or buy-in. I have talked to a lot of parents who are very anxious about vaccinating uh, 5 to 11-year-olds with the mRNA vaccine. Anxious meaning they really want to. Well, anxious that they really want to, A, and anxious just having anxiety about Uh. whether they want to vaccinate um, because kids, you know, and the point is well taken, kids generally don't get sick uh, with COVID. It's it's not as uh, virulent uh, an illness in 5 to 11 year olds as it is in, you know, older children even or adults. But um, it's, you know, it's a vaccine that we know is quite safe and effective. Um, and frankly, having seen now um, several children who are quite sick from COVID, um, you know, the risk-benefit, again, I sound like a broken record, but the risk-benefit certainly augurs for vaccinating your 5- to 11-year-old rather than sitting and waiting for COVID to find that kid. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and how, when you talk with parents about that, are there anxieties kind of put to rest a yeah bit? If you, i mean I, I spend a lot of time talking about um you know how many kids have gotten very sick with uh, with covid um in this age group um and so here, here locally no or, or even nationally mm-hmm. um you know I, I pulling the numbers it's around eight eight to ten thousand uh five to eleven year olds who've been hospitalized with covid um that's a that's a lot um and it's it's probably approaching around 200 kids in this age group who have died from covid um so if you look at those numbers it's still a fairly benign illness in general but 200 dead kids from something that is now preventable um you know the vaccine is going to be just as effective in 5 to 11 year olds as it is in um, the older adult the older population so we're talking about a 12-fold reduction in the need for hospitalization or the risk of death that's huge that's enormous um and so as a parent wanting to do the best thing to protect one's kid you know the risk benefit comes down very solidly on the on the side of getting vaccinated how does it compare to other conditions uh, or illnesses that we just regularly vaccinate for compare in terms of the risk to kids and and that we sort of go ahead well, so and, and we, vaccinate because we want to reduce that risk yeah i mean so there's there are a lot of vaccines. I mean, that's one of parents' gripes is there are so many pediatric vaccines. People think that's annoying. I think it's fantastic because it really prevents a lot of illnesses that kill or maim um, children or adults, for example. So there's the HPV vaccine now, which is this fantastic vaccine that's going to more or less eliminate cervical cancer, um, you know, once there's enough uptake. Um, that doesn't kill kids, right? It kills adults, but it, it is now a pediatric, yeah. yeah, it is now a pediatric vaccine that is, you know, safe and very effective. Um, a disease like measles is many more times um, dangerous than COVID for children, um, to be certain. It just doesn't really exist very much because, well, there's really good vaccine uptake. Not good enough in small little pockets, and we see these little measles outbreaks that, you know, will kill people. All right. Uh, the other news, of course, gets a little bit more into the politics rather than the, the medicine, but it's about these uh, the, the national shot mandate, the vaccine mandate that's supposed to be coming down yes. on January 4th. We'll see how that plays out. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't think it's going to be for everybody. The Madden is going to be for people that interface with the federal government, right? We'll see. Yeah, so it's just an incredible thing to watch how the U.S. is trying to encourage vaccination and, and how we're just descending into this kind of yeah, <laughs> morass. I, it's, we will get through it. Um, that's, that's really all I can say is, you know, people aren't going to get vaccinated. There's a cohort of people at this point who are just absolutely not going to get vaccinated regardless. Um, I think the vaccine mandate is going to just harden their position, at least until um, money's on the line, and then maybe they will decide to get vaccinated. Um, I still see people, to be sure. Um, you know, I, I saw several people in the last few days with COVID and sick from COVID, feeling really bad from COVID, who are unvaccinated. And, you know, I, I was tempted to ask them to come on the radio and talk about their buyer's remorse of having drunk the anti-vax Kool-Aid. Because really, when I get in a conversation with these individuals who have chosen not to be vaccinated, um, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of there there. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a moving target. Um, and the opposition, as I discuss it with these individuals, um, is extremely nebulous to the actual vaccine. Right. And maybe there's a, a core group of people who are really, really outspoken about all of the sort of anti-rationale stuff. But most people, I think, who aren't vaccinated are just sort of averse to having a shot and if they have a chance to get some real information maybe they you know get kind of yeah until until it's too late and covid finds them i mean the folks that i that i run into who are kind of resisting it they don't have any big ideological problem with it they just yeah i don't know do i really need to get it is it really that dangerous you know right Anyway, all right, so should we open up the phone lines? Sure, we've talked long enough. We have. (laughs) It's the local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax, and it is time for you to call in with your questions, if you have them. 707-895-2448 is the number here in the studio, and we will be here until 10 o'clock, so let's go ahead and take our first call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Oh, hi. I have um, two questions. One is where to get the 15-minute rapid test. I've called a few pharmacies, and they didn't have them and weren't sure where. And if you don't know, maybe some callers will call in. Um, Because as a fully vaccinated senior, I know that the vaccines are only 90-plus percent effective. And my next question is... How many um, or what percent of the fully vaccinated seniors that have died of COVID had no comorbidity at all? And of the ones that did have comorbidities, what were they? Um, What were the main ones, like diabetes or obesity or whatever, if you could say those? Thanks. Bye. Yes, yeah, so I, I wish I could tell you where to get the uh, the 15 minute over the counter uh, rapid COVID test. That is in extremely short supply nationwide right now. Um, I haven't seen it on pharmacy shelves for quite some time. 
Uh, so the best alternative to that is going to a um, testing center and getting tested, whether it's the fairgrounds or your local clinic, uh, which most of them now do offer COVID testing. Um, so call first. Um, but those are those are sort of the two alternative options. If anybody knows where the Binax over-the-counter to to uh, two test kits may be available. Call and let me know, but I, I just haven't seen it. Um, I've only ever heard of someone getting one on Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it used to be there used to be stacks of it at CVS and Walmart and everywhere everywhere else in Ukiah at least. Um, but that has been um, not the case for well over a month at this point. Now it is, you know, unfortunately also though twenty dollars for two tests, um, whereas most of the tests at most every center is free, with obviously the exception of the emergency room where it is a very expensive test indeed uh, and, and then the yeah. second question yeah. um, about comorbidities. Uh, comorbidities and what percentage of the, of the people um, who've died recently from COVID were vaccinated. I don't have that exact data. Um, there's a lot of confidentiality uh, issues that I just don't want to get into in this very small county. I can say, um, not with 100% certainty, but certainly from an observational um, experience that the people who are fully vaccinated who get very sick from COVID have a lot of comorbidities. So it's usually not just one or two, um, but it's it's several um, at least. And the ones that we see as providers, uh, particularly in the elderly patients who need to be hospitalized, um, obesity is just this huge um, driver of it. Uh, we see that time and time and time again um not for just the people who get um really really sick and succumb to covid but the people who require hospitalization uh, so that that tends to be one that we see quite a bit um cardiovascular disease and renal disease are um, two other big ones that we've just seen quite a bit are those um associated obesity and cardiovascular disease and and that or do you see that obesity is its own well, it's, uh, it's hard. It's hard to, you know, they they co-vary, right? Yeah. I mean, obesity can certainly put a strain on your cardiovascular system. Um, but we have seen, I have seen younger people, um, you know, people in their 40s um, or 30s even, who don't have cardiovascular disease um, and whose only risk factor, at least the only identifiable risk factor, is obesity, who are very sick from COVID, um, even even vaccinated individuals. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah. All right, 895-2448. The lines are open here. It's the local coronavirus update. I have an email, uh, so I'll read that. Experts keep explaining how the COVID-19 vaccine protects you from being hospitalized or dying. But can you expand on how much it protects you from contracting COVID, if at all? Uh, She remembers you saying a while back that previously the vaccine did seem to protect people from contracting the virus, but not as much now since Delta. So how safe is my fully vaccinated household? Uh, How safe is it if my fully vaccinated household has finally decided to host outdoor gatherings with two or three other vaccinated people? With Delta, are vaccinated people really more protected from contracting COVID or are we just kidding ourselves? (laughs) Well, that is a good question. Um, yes, we're probably kidding ourselves, but not on this. Um, the <laughs> the the uh, the vaccine, and they're really 
we can sort of lump them all together for this type of question because our data is not super solid. But it appears that the vaccine reduces your risk of contracting COVID, um, even a mild case of COVID or a symptomatic case or even just a test positive COVID um, by at least 50%, um, perhaps more. And, you know, as I just mentioned a minute ago, the reduction in uh, mortality and hospitalization, it's about a 12-fold reduction still, uh, maybe maybe down to tenfold with the Delta. Uh, but in terms of actually just getting a mild case of the disease, it does work. It doesn't work as well as it had during the pre-Delta phase of this pandemic. Um, it certainly can be expected to not work as well when we get into our next um phase um but for now um that type of an event gathering outdoors with a group of family or friends who are fully vaccinated that is fine um that the risk of even contracting delta or delta um you know from an asymptomatic person in that group to another person is is quite low even even with our county numbers so even though vaccinated people can get covid still it's way less likely to yes. just to even get yeah, it. Correct. And, you know, and the risk of getting a symptomatic infection, even with Delta, um, is still quite low. And the boosters now are, you know, pretty widely available, um, which further lessens the likelihood that you're going to have a symptomatic or a COVID infection that you even notice. All right. Let's take our next call. Hey, caller. You're live on the air. Hello. Hi. You're live. Oh, hello. I just wanted to let you know Walgreens and Ukiah. Has the Binax test kits? Well. Caller? Caller seemed to have. Okay. Well. Well, Walgreens and Ukiah might have something. Yes. Call back. <laughs> hello, caller. You're live on the air. Okay. Well, hi. Um. I'm listening to you guys. I'm reminded of like Labrador Retrievers, which are really, really super smart dogs. And then you start to play fetch with them, and they just get hooked on that stick. And that's how NPR seems to be with with vaccines. Usually, you're like a very objective news channel, but when you get around vaccines, like you're completely one sided. Um, you know. I, I don't think any of this stuff makes sense. And now they're trying to encourage people to, uh, you know, stick their kids with this experimental drugs. Kids have basically no chance of dying from this. You have 100 kids, you said, nationwide during this pandemic that have died from, from COVID. I mean, you have more kids that have died from bicycle accidents, also, also preventable diseases or preventable deaths. But nobody's thinking about taking their bikes away from their kids. I, I, I just don't see why there's such a strong promotion of this vaccine. Well, for two, re for two reasons. Um, first, um, you know, 175 dead kids is something that should best be avoided. Now, perhaps you feel otherwise, but I don't as a provider. Um, and we know. What's that? What about the risks? What about yeah, so that, that, the idea that, 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 that they actually might get sick from the vaccines? Yeah. Does so, that never happen? No, I'm not, I don't think I've ever said that that never happens. I am a doctor and a lawyer, and I really don't use a word like never, ever. Um, and so 
I yes, kids may get myocarditis um, from the vaccine. That probably will happen. Um, we know from the older cohorts that that is a rare, but not. Um, not impossibly rare um, risk of getting the vaccine. We also know that kids tend to recover from that um, condition uneventfully. Additionally, we know that the risk of children getting this condition is much higher from COVID than from the vaccine. So if you want to avoid getting uh, myocarditis in your child, the best way to do that is to get the vaccine. So I'm not I, 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 I like Labrador Retrievers, um, and Me I like too. sticks, but I'm not really sure that your analogy is quite fair to this NPR COVID show. Well, I just want to point out, I just got back from Florida a couple weeks ago. I went there for a wedding, and nobody's wearing masks. Then they go into the grocery store, and I used to think, oh, Florida, you know, they're so rebellious. They're so cheeky. They just do whatever they want. They're not rebellious. They're just normal, and we're hyper like hypochondriacs out here. And guess what? Florida is doing better right now than mask-wearing California. My daughter lives in Sweden. They've never worn masks. They've never done any yeah, of this Sweden, stuff. They've Sweden. done better than the United States. Where is, what about that data? No, I mean, no, I'm sorry, sir. How can the United sir. States do worse than Sweden, who never, ever did a lockdown? Yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, what is that? That's what the stuff that you're not promoting at okay. all. You're not Would you like a response? It. Yeah, so just to be clear on the facts, Florida has done less well than California on COVID. Um, They had a big surge um, during the summer that resulted in very high mortality rates. Sweden, since you bring it up, that's sort of old news. They did real well until, oops, people realized that the mortality from COVID in Sweden was about six times higher than it was in its surrounding Scandinavian countries. So Sweden's strategy um, was a talking point that was brought out by Fox News and like early on until the data just got really, really uncomfortable. So Sweden has done better than us, though. And well, we wear masks. We've done so worse than you, any country in the world, just to be clear. Our, our management of COVID has been a catastrophe for 20 months. And it's not because of the masks. Let's just be very sure about that. It's about a lock, the lack of a lot of other things that we have done. Well, but, hey, look. And in Florida, they're not wearing masks. They actually are doing better now. If they had a surge in the summer, it's because everybody and their mother is going to Florida. Because Florida's fun. Florida's normal. We want to get back to normal. Nobody's going to San Diego. Why? Because it's not, it's not fun, you know, to have to go out with your mask on. So, of course, you're going to get more, a little bit of a surge. You know, plus, Florida's got a lot of elderly people. So, I mean, if you want to, you know, oh, well, we'll only compare Sweden to Norway because it's right next to each other. Why are we comparing Florida to California? You know, I mean. Well, because it's way more fun. Okay, caller, thank you so much for the call. Okay, have a good morning. Yeah, I know. You want to cut me off because well, you want to keep promoting you've been on it. for three and a half minutes. That's about the average. So, and you've made your points and we appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hi, um, I had a question um, to about the new variants. I, this was maybe a month ago. I heard something AY two four whatever. I who knows? Um, I was wondering what info you had on um, new variants that they're suspicious of, and I'll take my answer after I hang up. Thanks. 
Yeah, so I mean, there there are a lot of variants uh, to be sure that are being monitored fairly closely um, worldwide. Uh, the the mu variant has been one that has gotten a lot of attention, um, and actually, data just showed that it was about seven to eight times um, more effective at evade, evading um, the vaccine-induced immunity um, than the the previous or the original flavors of COVID. That said, Delta's um, ease of transmission has really swamped out um, the capacity or the ability of any of these other strains to become uh, very prominent for now. That might change, um, but it really hasn't moved a lot in the last few months. Whether any one of these, and I don't really want to get into you know the various strains that are out there, uh, whether any one of these suddenly surges and emerges as dominant in either um, causing increased mortality or morbidity or in ease of transmission, uh, we just we just don't know yet. It probably will happen. Uh, there are just way too many worldwide cases for it not to happen um, in this virus that is uh, fairly um, liable to mutate on an ongoing basis. Um, but where it's going to happen and how it's going to unfold, we just don't know. The good news is that there is much greater genomic surveillance. Uh, you know, the United States has finally sort of caught up with Europe and um, Asia and even in South America, there's much greater genomic surveillance. So people have a better sense of where these strains might be and where they might be headed. Are they they're being fairly vigilant about it at this point? That's that, that seems to be the yeah that that seems that's what I'm seeing now. Whether that actually translates to you know the degree of vigilance that we need to catch one of these things early on, I don't know. But we also do know that these at least the mRNA vaccines are um, pretty nimble. Um, so if something starts to emerge, um, you know there might be a booster if if it's a particularly nasty. Strain. They can be tailored specifically yes. to that yes. new variant. All right, it's eight nine five two four four eight. We'll take our next caller. Good morning. Caller, you're live on the air. Caller? Hello? 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 Hi, go ahead, you're live. Hi, um, I had a question about young children, um, unvaxxed young children, and having people come up to visit for the holidays. We have an infant and a seven-year-old who is unvaxxed and a family member who's coming to town with his significant other who has also got unvaccinated children. The kids aren't coming, um, and they are going to test ahead of time, but I'm just wondering how you guys feel about that. Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, if they're going to, if this family or the the adults in the family are coming to visit, um, and they are vaccinated with children who are not vaccinated um, and they're visiting a household that is vaccinated or at least every eligible member is vaccinated at this point that that risk is entirely manageable even though there are children um, under the age of five who have not yet qualified uh, for the vaccine uh, yeah it's it's not it's not a vanishing it's a vanishingly small risk but it's not zero testing beforehand to make certain that there's or to get a better sense of whether there's an asymptomatic infection is an entirely reasonable um, strategy to further reduce that risk but i think this is actually a holiday season where people can get together um, with you know with some 
caution. Um, you know, the people who are at extremely high risk of contracting COVID and getting a breakthrough infection that is bad still need to be thoughtful around it. Um, I would encourage all those individuals, if they haven't already, to get the booster. Um, and even multiple boosters um, would not be an unreasonable strategy uh, for people with significant immune suppression. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah, right. Get together that for the holidays. Not what I expected to hear from you yeah. today, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling loosey goosey. Yeah. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Let's hear from our next caller. Hey, caller, you're live on the air. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yep, you sound great. Cool, thank you. Uh, thank you for the show. My first question is is as these new variants come up, um, what's the process for? Um, authorizing the vaccine? Does it just kind of get tucked in as they tweak the vaccine? Uh, or do we have to go through the whole emergency use and then the author, full authorization? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and it's one that's been addressed um, at, 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 at the highest levels. And there's going to be, an, I, I think, the way they finally settle on uh, moving forward for that eventuality is there's going to be an accelerated um, review process. There's not going to have to be a full you know, 44,000 clinical trial um, if it's um, you know, a simple codon replacement on the the mRNA um, vaccine to target this new strain. Um, so it'll be it'll be a more streamlined process. Kind of, okay. kind of like the yeah. the flu vaccine, right? We get a new flu vaccine every year um, that is tailored to, I you know, to treat what the CDC thinks is going to be the flu uh, of the season, of the year, and they have to make that determination about twelve months out. But that vaccine does not go through a whole new clinical trial each year. It is simply the same technology um, that is tailored to meet what is their best guess and they actually you know pick three um and vaccinate against what they think are the three most likely flu strains to emerge but we're not there yet you know this is something that is hypothetical um i i could foresee uh, i hate to say this but a, a fourth covid uh, booster um sometime next summer if we start to see a strain that emerges that not just not just is present but is carrying a fair amount of morbidity and mortality and that's that's entirely possible that we could get there yeah, thank you. And then I have just two quick other questions. The first one is, um, do you anticipate this becoming like the flu, where it's a flu shot every year? Um, you know, it's not like we're going to just get a vaccine that's going to totally wipe it out forever. I don't know. Uh, keep... Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, this might become maybe not so much the flu, but maybe a tetanus type of thing. Um, it's just really going to depend on how durable this immunity proves to be. Um, you know, we've already seen some waning during the fairly high acute phase of this pandemic. And, you know, one can have issue with the decision to move forward with booster shots for the population versus worldwide immunization. That is certainly a valid criticism. Um, but um, in the context of, you know, 75 to 150,000 daily cases, um, that booster certainly was warranted. We could certainly, as a nation, tolerate a drop-off in our immunity for COVID or our, our antibody response for COVID if the numbers go down, in which case, you know, I could see a COVID booster shot being recommended every five years um, rather than every season. But that's, yeah. you know, that that really is speculation. We're, we just aren't there yet, and we don't really know how this is going to unfold. Yeah, and then my last question real quick. Um, so if you do the math, you find out that uh, a child under the year, the age of, of 
65 is about 3,000 times less likely to die of COVID than someone who's over 65. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I actually uh, would peg that number even higher, but go on. Cool. Yeah. Um, and so I, I am a little bit frustrated as a parent that, um, you know, how you know, there's if you look at the CDC and you were to do each, you know, look at each vaccine that's recommended on their schedule, there's something like 30 plus um, individual vaccines. Some yeah. of them you get like five in a shot. Right. And I have real concern that adding another one that we know so little about in terms of its interactions with any one of those 30 plus vaccines um, is a real concern. And I'm wondering if, if other doctors or researchers are sharing that concern or if they're just kind of just pushing it through because we're in a state of emergency. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, as a parent of three kids, um, seeing, you know, the, the five shots that the six-month-old infant gets is, is painful to be sure. Um, but uh, what we know so far about this vaccine and about how the immune system functions, the addition of of this um, antigen in the form of the vaccine is really just one more um, antigen that the developing immune system is learning to identify in the context or in the setting of it identifying literally thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of antigens. So it's, it's simply one more target that a developing child's immune system is identifying. It's not like this is a huge burden or human immune huge immunologic burden on that child's immune system it's it's a fraction it's a tiny fractional increase and while we're talking about sort of long-term effects of vaccines or while there's angst around that i will say you know when when the vaccines first came out back in december and january uh, we didn't have much long-term clinical data we had you know a few months follow-up of those 44,000 people that were in the pfizer and the moderna vaccine trials um was just published this past week and is showing no so far long-term effects which is kind of of predictable that's biologically what we would expect um, but that follow-up data just was published and lo and behold it was probably one of the more boring articles you can find because there was really just nothing there all right Colin. yeah scientific articles are pretty tough i will say i have a friend who recently had uh the vaccination and then had a miscarriage and then i have a good friend who had the vaccination and had an aneurysm, a double heart attack, and then died. Um, he was in his 70s, so that could have just been coincidental. But um, yeah. I do think there's a lot of unreported, because there's no mandate on reporting any adverse things. And when I talked to my friend who had the miscarriage, I said, did you report it? And she said no. Yeah. And I think it should be, you know, if, if anyone gets the vaccine, please, and you have some kind of a condition, even if it's mild. Like my partner got it, and she started bleeding. She had blood in her stool. Um, those things, should, and she didn't want to report it. And I think that's a big problem that we're all facing right now is no one wants to report it. Um, no one's mandating report it, yet we're mandating the vaccine. So I just want to throw that out there. All right, caller, thank you. We've got a lot of calls on deck, so I'm yeah, going to go ahead. But the caller does make a good point. I mean, there, there, there certainly is a good argument for mandatory, at least provider reporting for uh, suspected vaccine events. That doesn't exist. I think most providers are actually fairly conscientious about reporting um 
there are concerns when there's there's proximity um you know but there's also i you know the the flip side of this is not everything that happens to one over the course of the next year is going to be due to the vaccine um and as the cdc and as all these international agencies continue to monitor the safety profile um they're really looking for evidence of causation um rather than uh, simply uh, proximity and there's just not yet um and you know for the friend who had the miscarriage you know we we know that um covid is much more dangerous uh, for pregnant women now um than the vaccine and so you know the american college of gynecologists and obstetricians is recommending the vaccine and in no uncertain terms and I have worked with many pregnant providers over this pandemic who are at the hospital working, and you know they they struggled with it initially, but they all did ultimately get vaccinated um, before there was a mandate, before there was even any hint of a mandate, um, because they looked at the data and they knew what was you know what that was telling them. All righty, let's take our next call. Hey, caller, you're live on the air. No, you're not. <laughs> Call back 895-2448-707-895-2448. It's the local coronavirus update here on KZYX. Now in its new time slot, alternating with Mind Body Health every other Tuesday morning from 9 to 10. Hey, caller, thanks for calling back. You're live on the air. Uh, Yes, thanks for taking the call. Um, Could you discuss uh, the correlation between vitamin D and the severity of covid yeah, there was there was a lot of uh, thought that that was um, that was perhaps a predictor of poor outcomes with COVID. Um, that that got a lot of attention a little over a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, it, it, vitamin D, um, and more particularly vitamin D deficiency, um, certainly does correlate with worse outcomes, not just with COVID, but with just about any um, disease, pro- any infectious disease process, certainly. Um, and so that is, you know, that is something that hasn't really translated into a lot of excitement um, in terms of managing COVID. If you're vitamin D deficient, then you should get corrected. Um, but if you're not, um, then sort of high doses of vitamin D really don't have a therapeutic role in treatment of COVID. Now, I'm yes, not... but as we go into winter with shorter days, yeah. there's less vitamin D that people have. Sure, uh, sure. And there's also it, it, higher it, incidence of, of COVID. Yeah, no, and that's, that's a good point. So, and particularly in the elderly population, vitamin D deficiency is very prevalent. Um, and so it's something that internists, um, general practitioners, really do watch for. As an ER doctor, you know, vitamin deficiencies are really not exciting at all um, because you don't generally end up with a vitamin D emergency. Um, but when I admit somebody who's sick with something, a vitamin D level is something that the hospitalist, so the internal medicine doctor, checks and treats. And that's something that most general practitioners um, really around the country, but certainly in this community, are monitoring. Um, but yes, it's a, it's a good point. And you know, for particularly the 65 and up population, vitamin D levels are um, an integral part of getting sort of surveillance lab testing. All right. Well, thank, thanks for uh, you know discussing things that people can do themselves. Yes. Uh, to minimize the risk. No, and you know it's it's been funny, right? We we've we've been so vigilant about um, sunscreen and covering up in the sun, um, which is certainly a good idea, but it has actually led to increased ri- uh, risk of vitamin D deficiency.
Oh, and lockdown. And Some lockdown. people not going to the beach. Yeah. Well, people can go to the beach again. Where the beaches I, are I, they can now, but that's you know. feeling like old, old, the old days yeah. when we couldn't go to the beach. Not so long ago. Okay. Well, thanks for the show. <laughs> All, All right, right. Thanks thank a lot. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Oh, I guess you're not. Hmm. No. Eight nine five two four four eight. We are trying to get you live on the air, folks. So this many is, dropped calls. I know it's yeah. very odd. Yeah. I, I just think it's coincidence. It's the weather. Yeah, blame it on it's the vitamin weather. D. <laughs> Hello, caller. You are live on the air. Hello, Alicia. Hello, you're live on uh, the air. Okay, I have a question about nursing mothers and the vaccine. What are the pros and cons? Well, the the pros um, are twofold, actually. So if there's an unvaccinated nursing mother, um, the pros are that mother should get vaccinated um, because it's safe and effective. No surprise there that I'm going to say that. But the other thing is that nursing mother is going to make antibodies to COVID that are going to be passed on to that infant child. Um, and so that infant child will get induced secondary immunity um, well before um, anybody's going to be vaccinating that, you know, one or two-year-old or six-month-old child. That's that's a long ways off um, in terms of the, the clinical trials. So that those are the pros. The cons really aren't different um, for the mother or child than they are for anybody else. Um, the risk of the infant getting some sort of adverse reaction from a vaccinated mother are I, I can't even conceive of how that would actually happen. I, I'm comfortable saying that that is never going to have a bad outcome. I just said never, but I just I don't see any biologically plausible way that a lactating mother is going to pass an antibody to this nursing infant and cause some sort of bad outcome. That's implausible to say the least. Um, the risk to the mother are the same, um, you know, that they are for the rest of us when we get vaccinated. So, you know, there's maybe two in 10,000 risk of having some sort of mild to moderate uh, medical complication, um, most likely myocarditis, though less common in women than in men. Um, but certainly, you know, the aches and the pains and the myalgias and maybe one in several million risk of something more serious. Thank you very much. Yep. All right. Thank you, caller. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, caller. Oh, my goodness. This person is calling back over and over again, and I'm not able to get them on the air. Let's keep trying. 895-2448. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. Hi there. I'm one that keeps getting dropped off, so. All well, right. Glad we made got it. you. You made it. I'm, I'm here. Yay. So, okay. So, what I'd like to ask is, um, Maybe for the naysayers on getting vaccinated is to talk about how much it costs to go into the hospital. I mean, plus, if you don't make it, the funeral costs. And um, maybe why the 56-year-old didn't go into the hospital until the last moment. I mean, I know just to walk in the emergency room, it's very expensive. And so I'd like to just kind of hear about that, if you could do something like that. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, COVID care is 
outrageously expensive. And, and one of the ironies, really, as a provider um, is seeing people who don't trust the COVID vaccine um, at the recommendation of just about every doctor who has thought about this for more than a few seconds. Um, and yet coming into the hospital and trusting the decisions that I am making um, to treat their acute COVID illness. That disconnect is really hard to um, sort of wrap one's mind around, right? I mean, here I am saying you should get vaccinated. Oh, now you're very sick, and this is how we're going to manage your COVID. Um, and that person is trusting what I recommend in that regard. It's it's strange, to say the least. There's, there's this discordance there um, that is really... Um, dense at times as for the cost yes i mean i you know i will see patients and i will tell them you know it cost maybe 100 or 200 dollars to see me in the emergency room um, but this room that you are sitting in depending on how you're triaged that's you know that's a thousand to five thousand dollars and mm-hmm. any tests that we run are going to be you know on top of that so the bills run up extremely high and if you're hospitalized then you know you could be in the hospital for days to weeks um, receiving covid care which is very expensive um and so you know people are people are seeing 50 75 150 thousand dollar medical bills for a you know what may be a fairly routine hospitalization for covid yeah i i, I was just thinking about how that's not discussed a lot and a lot of people just think Oh, well, everything's free. Well, right, and that's that's also why the federal government feels like they can mandate or should mandate a vaccination, because this is a cost that is being borne um, by our government, really, and by us um, in the form of trying to keep a government that's, you know, relatively solvent and and functioning. Um, And so that burden, that cost, um, is quite high. And the you know, the ancillary costs of continued COVID are also extraordinarily high um, and almost impossible to quantify, right? So there's, there's a lot of reason um, from, a, from a governmental or from a societal perspective to push or to require vaccination, at least for those of us who want to have any interaction with our government. If you want to, if you want to move to a mountaintop right. um, and, you know, disconnect, then so be it. COVID will find you. Let's be very sure about that. Um, and at that point, you're going to present to a hospital and, you know, receive subsidized care, whether you have insurance or not. Let's just be clear. That is care that is subsidized to some extent. As expensive as it is. Well, I'm fully vaccinated, so I was just no. You're making li- yeah, listening I, to the thing of of uh, how these people go in and they're in there for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then you go, well, how's that cost being absorbed? And are these people being charged for it? And you know, money talks in this program. You know talks about money yeah it comes down to politics and stuff but i go you know it should be something that people are well aware that hey you may end up with this you know taking the chance for these three shots to go in and just get a free shot and maybe be protected or having your life changed around because you're being uh you know in the hospital for a long time and then having to absorb those costs if you make it or your family has to absorb those costs right you know, no, and I, so. I, I, I do want to be cautious here, though. I mean, we right. we pay for health care for a lot of things that result from 
um, health risky decision making. Let's just say that, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. COVID's killing 1,200 people um, a day in this country, more or less. Um, the American diet is killing probably twice that many, um, more or less, yeah. per day. Um, and you know, we don't we don't flinch at um, treating somebody um, from you know complications resulting from a bad diet or lack of exercise or you know to flip the coin a little bit or from you know preventable trauma you know bicycle deaths as one caller pointed out kill more people nationwide than covid does but you know that's an acceptable risk um for you know for our society although actually i don't think 200 people have died on bicycles um so that that number actually is probably considerably lower but my point being we do subsidize um, risky activity in the healthcare setting all the time. That is just the decision that we have made. Because the, the contrary, the, the, the contrary approach would be simply unworkable. There would be no way that you could say, well, you have COVID, you didn't get vaccinated, you now have to pay your medical bills. Um, that would be akin to my saying you didn't strap in before you drove your car into a tree, so now you have to pay your medical bills out of pocket. We just we just don't do that. Um, we encourage people to get strapped in. Uh, we require it, much as we're going to be requiring vaccination because we know that seatbelts and vaccines work. Mm-hmm. Right. So yes, you're, you make a really good point, Carl. I appreciate uh, I appreciate your allowing me to rift on it a little bit. <laughs> so could I just ask the the last little bit of the question? So do. You, Somebody that was 56 years old that passed away, and I feel really sorry because she, you know, did, waited till the last minute to go in and get the shot, I guess, that could change that uh, COVID. That was on Dr. Horns. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, but there was like that 10-day window, but how would somebody know at that point that they were... Um, going downhill so that they could get in there before to go, you know, because now we're talking the, to go into emergency to the $1,200, um, you know. Thing. ER room, yes. Yeah, so, so I mean, how would that person know? And I can just take it off the air, and then um, if you could just say that, I would appreciate it. All right. Thank you, caller. Yeah, so okay, thank you guys for the program. Thank you. Not not to get too much into the specifics of this one case. Um, you know, it COVID is an illness um which is very easily or moderately easily prevented with a vaccine or mitigated with a vaccine. Our treatment for it is still not super great. Um and so when somebody has COVID um and comes to the ER, um it's you know it's too late for us to do our best intervention. Um, our best intervention by far is the vaccine. Once they come to the ER and they're sick, then we have all these secondary um, treatments that we can do. None of which is all that great. I mean, steroids are good. Oxygen is the big one. Proper respiratory or airway management. We've learned a lot about with COVID in the last year and a half. Um, but. You know, how do you know you need to come to attention? I can tell you I have seen a few people that have really waited um, much longer than I could have imagined pre-COVID. Um, but most people come in to get checked when they have more shortness of breath or chest pain. And that's a reasonable uh, way to come for, come to medical attention. Sometimes we'll just see those people out front um, and send them on their way, you know, saying you're still fine. Come back in a few days if things change. 
I do that on a daily basis these days, actually. Um, but that's, you know, that's really what to watch for in terms of when do you come in and uh, incur a medical bill. Is if you're having a hard time breathing, you need to be rechecked. Period. Yeah, it's interesting for people who want to avoid interventions, for people who want to avoid being involved in Western medicine. The vaccine is a really good option because it's a little teeny tiny intervention that prevents you from having a much larger intervention later. Yes. So, no, we can get very interventional very quickly in the yeah, ER. Sounds you, extremely unpleasant. And you do not want to be in that category, let me tell you. And then you have long COVID one of the worst long COVID symptoms, which is medical bills that can destroy your life. So uh, not fun at all. And that's not, we don't like make treatment decisions based on, or at least we, we shouldn't have to make treatment decisions based on whether you can afford it or not, but that's our system these days. So it's, it's, it's bad un- unfortunate indeed yeah. all right so we got about two minutes left i'm gonna just give that time to you to wrap up if you want we're gonna be back in two weeks two weeks wow so long i know lots of stuff will happen and we'll talk about it on the 23rd <laughs> yeah, well, maybe by then we'll have the 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 antiviral pill approved yeah what that's, is that? actually that's probably going to be further off still but we're headed that way so a new effective treatment yeah, this is the one I mentioned. I mean, there are actually two. There's one from Pfizer and there's one from Moderna. Um, the one from, let me see if I get this right. I think the one from Pfizer, no, the one from Moderna has been approved in Britain, um, actually. So they're they're deploying it now. Um, and I think we'll be seeing that maybe by the end of the year, but it might be January. That's, that's the next big step. Uh, now that we have the 5 to 11 pediatric group, uh, the under 5 is going to be sometime probably late spring, early mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still quite a ways off. So other developments, you know, stay tuned, but there's not a lot. We have our third doses. We're probably going to get approval for third doses for everybody um, by our next show. We'll see, um, rather than just sort of the the age cutoff and the at-risk occupations, we'll have that approved, I suspect, in the next two weeks. All right. Any advice for folks before we head out of here? Same as it ever was. You know, wear your mask. Um, say stay distant, although not as distant as we needed to be. If you're not vaccinated or you know somebody's not vaccinated, have a conversation with yourself or with them. Be safe, be kind, be patient, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks. All right. This is the local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Dr. Drew Kolvax. Thanks so much, Drew. Thank you, Alicia. See Thank you, in. callers. Thank you, callers. We'll see you in two weeks with more local coronavirus news. Thanks for listening. This has been the Local Coronavirus Update podcast with Dr. Drew Colfax, produced by Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg, California. You can also hear us live on the web 24 hours a day at www.kzyx.org. If you'd like to listen live and call in to the local coronavirus update, you can find us in our new time every second and fourth Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time. Our live studio call-in number is 707-895-2448. You can also email your questions anytime at dj at kzyx.org. And you can always catch us right here as a podcast, KZYX Local Coronavirus Update with Dr. Drew Colfax. Our theme music is Bad News Blues by Lucinda Williams, and our outro music is a song called Stump Town.
composed and performed by Zach Borden. I'm Alicia Bales. We'll see you next time. <laughs>